You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Okay, well, the number seven, if you need a shorter catechism, we have quite a supply up here. So anybody who needs one, you can raise your hand. Uh, oh, yeah. There you go. And you're welcome to keep it. You're welcome to keep it. It's not autographed, but... Anyway, so the decrees of God. We're looking at this. We did cover this a little bit in the Confession of Faith. And the Catechism brings us through this again, but it doesn't hurt to go through it. Because this is an important and yet difficult subject. So, uh, Scripture does teach us, as we've seen in some of the earlier questions, what we are to believe concerning God. Remember the bifold description of what Scripture teaches, what we believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And so part of the teaching in Scripture includes what we call His decrees. God's eternal purpose has been described as his decrees. A decree, if you were to look up in one of the dictionaries or something of that nature, a decree is a decision or a determination rendered by lawful authority. So, for example, we read in Daniel 3, You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears shall worship the golden image. And you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were thrown into the furnace. So a decree is this sovereign, royal, authoritative decision that's rendered by a lawful authority. The official decision of the monarch was proclaimed publicly throughout the kingdom by heralds so that everybody would know. Before the world began, what we're being taught in this question is that from all eternity, God has ordained everything that takes place in creation and providence. Without exception, everything. It's difficult for finite beings to comprehend what that means. The number of days in your life, the number of hairs on your head, the number of sparrows in the world, all of it's ordained by God. None of it is outside of his sovereign purpose. And of course, because of this, it's difficult. There is no doctrine, perhaps, in Scripture that's been more contested than this one. His sovereign decrees. Some deny its validity. It can't possibly be. They're not denying it on the basis of Scripture. They're denying it on the basis of their own thinking. They don't like it. They can't understand it. The others, others try to explain it away. Well, it says a decree, but that's not exactly what it means. It just means that when God sees something, he declares it to be true. And still others just treat it with contempt. Yeah, that's what the Bible teaches. <clears throat> but I don't embrace it. I don't believe it. I don't like it. So it is a contested doctrine. And yet scripture, I believe, makes explicit the fact that God has an eternal purpose, which is an unchangeable plan. He's a rational being, and he has plan. If you think you're a planner, think about God. He has a plan. 
through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there Paul is referring to this everlasting plan that was framed before the foundation of the world. So that's where we are. That's by way of preliminary remarks. Any questions or comments at this point? Okay? So the question is, what are the decrees of God? And the answer given, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory, and there is the ultimate aim, remember question one, for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now that's comforting for the believer. It's comforting for the Christian. He knows that there is a sovereign, fatherly God who has ordained everything for his glory and our good. Question four, we learned that God is eternal and unchangeable. Pastor Pilon went over that. And God is not without purpose, but he has a plan, as we have said. And since he has a purpose, and since God does not change, that purpose must be eternal and unchangeable. If his plan changed, if it was contingent upon historical events, well, then God would change. So he is eternal and unchangeable, and that means that his plan is eternal and unchangeable. It has to do with his plan for the universe, and that plan is exact, it is comprehensive, it is eternal, and it's immutable. Cannot change. The larger catechism dealing with this particular subject says that this plan or act of the counsel of God's will is both wise and free and holy. So these decrees are wise, free, and holy. They're wise in that God's decrees harmonize with his perfections and they use the best means to the best ends. Now we don't understand how that works. All the tragedies that take place in our world the wars and rumors of wars, um, premature deaths, all kinds of things. But God's wisdom oversees all of it, and we can trust that his wisdom uses the best means to the best ends. Now, I don't understand that. But that's what it means for him to be wise. Best means, best ends, best time. And he's free. He is in no way influenced or constrained by any outside factor. There is nothing you can do to change what he has decreed. And if that means you're saved, there's nothing you can do to destroy your salvation. Now you say to yourself, well, I can, what if I sin? Well, if you sin, your heavenly father is going to chastise you and bring you back in. He will not let you live in your sin perpetually. He will bring you back. David is a perfect example. Now, it was some time, at least nine months. We don't know how long. But God brought him back to repentance unto life. So there is nothing you or I can do <clears throat> to destroy our salvation. It's in God's eternal decree. It's wise, it's free, and it's holy because they are perfectly consistent with his absolute holiness. There's no sin at all. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. 
an everlasting purpose. And we're going to look more, per more closely at that holiness aspect because God is not the author of sin, which is a difficult thing to understand if he ordains at all. Any questions or comments on this? Uh, Mark? I think it's so important that you highlighted that God chastens us, that he doesn't punish us. Sometimes we, when, when we do sin, we see the consequences of our choices as if it was God's punishment right. on us. Right. We have to realize that sometimes we have to we have to sleep in the bed that we made, you know, the consequences. But God doesn't punish us right. in the sense that he's, you know, where he's pouring out his wrath on us. He doesn't do that to the people, the, those uh, of his children. He only chastens us back into the world. That's exactly right. So we might have to endure the temporal consequences, but we will not have to endure the eternal punishment. Very good point. And it's important for us to recognize that because people can go one of two extremes. They can think that everything that happens to them is a punishment, or they can think that nothing is even a chastisement. And the fact that you're suffering some of the temporal consequences of your choices, that doesn't mean God has abandoned you. That means as a father, he's teaching you. Yeah, very good. Very good point. Was there another hand that I missed? Oh, Sue? <laughs> In the back of my brain somewhere it says in the scripture that God would want all to come to repentance. But not all do. Right. And you're going to say, I don't understand. <laughs> well, it's... The, the passage that you're referring to can be understood in, a, in several ways. One way is that he's talking about God wants all of his people to come to repentance. Yeah. Um, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, how do we understand the word world there? Does it mean that God loves every single living, breathing human being redemptively? No. We know that can't be the case because some of them go to hell. Does it mean that God loves people from all different kinds of nations? He loves all kinds of people. The whole world, representatives from every people group. Well, yeah. He'll draw people from every nation. So there's different ways to understand it, and that is a debated text. It's sort of like the offer of the gospel. How can God offer the gospel sincerely to every creature and yet knowingly elect only some. How can that be? How can he sincerely offer the gospel, but know that they can't respond unless his Holy Spirit regenerates their heart? I don't know, but that's how he does it. It is a sincere offer. If you believe in Christ, you will be saved. And it's made to every sinner on earth. It's public. But only those who are elect, only those who are regenerate will, will respond in faith. And that's not easy for us to grasp. We can't. It's like the divine sovereignty, human responsibility. How can that be? We don't know. But as we'll see, God ordains the free choices of responsible beings. That's profound. John? I was just thinking of the, uh, uh, I'm not glad that that's the wicked. Right. Right. Very sincere. God is sincere when he says that. 
See, the only reason a person will go to hell is because he or she chooses to go there. We choose to go to hell. That's what we want. We, want, we don't want to have anything to do with a holy God. <laughs> if we could figure this out, then our God would not be the infinite, eternal being worthy of our worship. He is a profoundly mysterious being. Yeah, and Laura? If, he, if there weren't mystery, we would corrupt what we knew until the last moment. There has to be mystery. Yeah, when you're dealing, you're right. When you're dealing with a God like this, there is mystery. You're right. And Otherwise, we, I mean, we would assume control until oh yeah. that last moment. Uh, yeah, we don't give us control. Right. <laughs> I was talking to my daughter the other day, and we were saying, we're talking about, she's like, which superhero would you want to be? What power would you want? You know. And I said, well, I probably wouldn't want to have Superman's powers because when I'm in traffic, I would destroy somebody. <laughs> That's not a good thing. I don't want that power. You, you could fly above the <laughs> I'd rather get his tires, you know. That's, <laughs> that's confession. I, okay. So the, the sort of catechism stresses the comprehensive nature of the decrees. Now, again, this is a very difficult doctrine. It's, it's, it's something that's revealed, which is why we need to look at it. But we can't possibly understand fully what is involved here. He's ordained from eternity whatsoever comes to pass. Great, small, public, private, doesn't matter, everything which comes to pass. There is no such thing as luck or chance or fate or fortune. All the details of the entire universe, even the smallest, have been ordained from eternity by God. It is comprehensive. The lot is cast into the lap, and it's, or, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You throw two dice. That's from the Lord. Now, I don't know why you're throwing the dice. It could be from Monopoly or whatever, but the point is, it is from the Lord. Now, you're saying to yourself, why would the Lord who is in charge of the universe, be concerned about two dice playing Monopoly. I don't know. But he is. He is. If he numbers the hairs of your head, how insignificant does that appear? But he does. A certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale of armor and the king died. He was disguising himself, you remember. I think it was Ahab. And uh, God had prophesied that he would die in battle, and he did. And accordingly, this is uh, speaking anthropomorphically, but he drew his bow at random. Well, God knew exactly what was going on, and God was the one who directed it, ordained it all. The Bible teaches that God's decrees include even the sinful actions of both angels and men. <clears throat> As for you, said Joseph, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So when his brothers threw him in the pit and then ended up selling him as a slave into Egypt, it was God's purpose being fulfilled in the evil actions of men. He ordains it all. And perhaps the greatest example of that is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, delivered up according to the predestination of God. 
But the ultimate aim of his decrees, all of them, is the manifestation of his eternal and unsearchable glory. We're going to be amazed as we go into eternity. We're exploring the manifestation of his glory in all the ways that his wisdom and his grace and his holiness are expressed in his providence. It's just incredible. Just think of the testimonies around this room, how God has brought us to know and confess Jesus Christ. It's incredible. And we're going to spend eternity just, oh, yeah, that was fantastic how God moved me and introduced me to this person and the gospel was shared or gave me a track from a cabbie. You know, it's just amazing what he does. He created all things for himself and all things exist for his glory and not our own. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things. So the comprehensive nature of his decrees is affirmed by this question and answer. Any comments or questions on that? Is that a question? No. Our confessions, the Spirit has promised that he would guide us into all the truth, the church especially, and through the centuries he's done just that. The scripture speaks of foreknowledge Election, predestination, undeniable. Even those words are included in Scripture. And God could not foreknow things unless he decreed them. <clears throat> I'm often struck when people say, well, yeah, I have no problem with God's foreknowledge, but I can't, I can't embrace his decrees. Well, how on earth could he know something's going to happen for certain <laughs> unless he ordained it? So if you believe in foreknowledge, you have to embrace the decrees. And if you believe in the decrees, you have to embrace the foreknowledge. They go together. You cannot separate them. If he knew before the foundation of the world that I'd be teaching this class, well, then he must have ordained it. How silly would it be for him to say, well, I'm, I don't know who ordained it, but I know it's going to happen. My counsel shall stand, I, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And the confessions have declared and owned this truth, the Belgic Confession, all whom he and his eternal and unchangeable counsel of mere, of mere goodness has elected. Second Helvetic, God has from the beginning freely and of his mere grace, without any respect of men, predestinated or elected the saints whom he will save in Christ. Canons of Dort, that some receive the gift of faith from God and others do not receive it, proceeds from God's eternal decree. So the confessions affirm this truth. And it does not in any way, and this is what's difficult for some to embrace, it doesn't in any way imply that God is the author of sin or that he is cruel or unjust. The Lord is good and the Lord does good, Psalm 119. He does not cause or approve of evil, but he does ordain and overrule it for his good purpose. Again, a mystery. That is a mystery. And it's not something that we can figure out. It's not against reason, but it's beyond reason. It's something we believe because Scripture teaches it. This is the Word of God. Again, I think it's somewhere I've, I've searched, tried to find it, but I, th I think it was Luther who said, if God told me in his word to eat dung, I would eat it. Because it's the word of God. So that's what it is. We believe it because he revealed it. And it does not take away the liberty of man's will, but is in perfect harmony with it. 
perfect harmony, an infinite eternal God, all wise, all powerful, can ordain everything and yet maintain the freedom of the creature. Any questions on the confessions? We're going to go into human responsibility next, but any questions on this? Yes, John. The, um, at least, I'm actually listening to some medieval uh, commentary on medieval theologians, and it was saying that that's one of the reasons that the idea of sin is an absence of goodness or of a, a deviation of goodness rather than being something positive existing in itself was, was kind of arrived at is, is this idea that God does not offer evil, that how evil exists, well, evil is a deviation, is something less than good. Yeah, I've heard that, and it's, it's a rational way of trying to get away from God being the author of sin. I'm not sure I can embrace that fully. I don't think it's just a negation. I don't think it's just a deprivation. I think there is an evil principle at work. Um, sorry. But again, I understand why they're trying to do that, because they don't want to accuse God of being the author of sin. I think, I think C.S. Lewis kind of delved into that, too. Yes, yeah. Laura? Sin separates us from God, so he can't possibly be the author. It's pretty... Now, he's not the author, that's right. Straightforward. Right. And again, I, at this point, there's only so far we can go with what Scripture has revealed. And we just have to trust that God can ordain it and not author it. I don't know how he can do that, but he does. So this, there is harmony between the decrees and human responsibility. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, says Paul, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there you have perhaps one of the linchpin texts for this concept. You work out your salvation. You're the one who exercises faith. You show up for church and use the means of grace. Why? Because it's God who's working in you both to will, to desire to do it, and to work, to have the ability to do it. So there's this wonderful harmony between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The liberty of human choice is not taken away, but it is established. He enables us to think our thoughts. You could not think a thought if God didn't enable you to do so. You couldn't draw breath or perform deeds or speak words or daily move because he is not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. Everything about us. Existence itself is sustained by God. So what could we do without him? Nothing. The liberty of human choice is not taken away. You couldn't think, say, do anything apart from his providence. You would have no authority over me, said Jesus, at all, unless it had been given you from above. Pilate's thinking that he's the one solely exercising judgment. And Jesus understood. God's the one who put you there. God's the one who brought you to this juncture. God's the one who enables you to render judgment. Within history, events are conditioned. There is cause and effect. Mark mentioned, like uh, bad decisions, you'll suffer some temporal consequences. You rob a bank, you'll go to jail. Well, 
most likely. <laughs> but God ordains all of it. So within history, within our relationships, for example, there is this idea of cause and effect. But God oversees all of it. And in his degree, he, decree, he ordains not only the ends, but this is what's important. He ordains all the means to those ends and all the conditions surrounding them. So I think it's this next text. Yeah, Paul's on the ship. He's going to Rome. Angel said, don't be afraid, Paul. Behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Wonderful, God's sovereignty. Paul later says to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. Well, which is it? God says they will be saved. And he tells the centurion they won't be saved if they don't stay in the ship. Well, the point is God ordained their salvation through the means of staying in the ship. And they stayed in the ship and they were all saved. But I think that shows that God ordains not only the ends, but the means to the ends. So you're saved. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, how does that work itself out? Well, God brings you to know Christ through the proclamation of the gospel or sharing the gospel. You go to church, you avail yourself of the means of grace, you're nourished week after week, and he saves you through those means. And he ordained those means to that end. It is a mystery. I keep saying this, but it's important to repeat that it is a mystery. The harmony between God's sovereignty and human responsibility is not something we can figure out or rationally define. It's something that we embrace by faith because God revealed it to be true. You can set up a chart. <clears throat> on the left side, God's sovereignty. On the right side, human responsibility. You can go through scripture and list all the texts of God's sovereignty. Then you can go through scripture and list all the texts of human responsibility, the exhortations, the warnings, and so forth. They're both taught. Now, what are we going to do? We believe scripture doesn't contradict itself. We believe God understands what he's revealing. All we can do is say, Lord, I bend the knee. Hebrews 11, by faith, I understand. Not, I understand so as to have faith. By faith, I understand. Any questions on that? <clears throat> okay. Foreknowledge, as we said, difficulty, people have difficulty with this. They get, <clears throat> they have... Knowledge means God knows whatever will happen, and his decrees refer to him ordaining whatever happens. Since he foreknows, as I mentioned, whatever happens, it means that he's ordained whatever comes to pass. His foreknowledge is as much a guarantee of the fixity of all things as is his decrees. And that foreknowledge includes his forelove for you. Adam knew his wife Eve and conceived, so he loves you before the foundation of the world. I, that is a concept that is so mind-blowing. He knew your name. 
He knew who you were. He knew who you were to become. He knew how he was going to save you before the foundation of the world. And that is as much a guarantee as is the decree that we're talking about this morning. If he knows beforehand I'm going to teach, I'll certainly teach. If someone has difficulty with the decrees, they have to struggle with his foreknowledge. You cannot have one without the other. It includes the free choices of believing and unbelieving people. It does no violence to the will of the creature. You are a free agent. When you choose, you choose freely. Now, does that necessitate that he can't ordain your choice? No. What, what requires God's sovereignty to be set aside if you can freely choose? What is it that requires that? Now, you're thinking to yourself, well, reason, logic. If I'm free, I'm the one who chooses. Yes. If he's sovereign, he's the one who ordains it. Yes. Why is that so? Why can't we have a complexity like that? Why do we have to have everything line up according to our way of thinking? He's an infinite God. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Don? Yeah, let's go back to the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Said, anybody goes to hell, it's his own choosing. Yes. And yet, God chose us. We don't chose, choose him. Right. So how can you explain this contra contradiction? Yes. Well, that's not a contradiction, <clears throat> although it seems to be. We, as sinners, in Adam, as you know, we chose to rebel. So every one of us is predisposed to rebel against his word, to repine and murmur against his providence, to do the will of the flesh and of the devil. That's what we're wired to do now. That's our choice. Our desires are for sin. We love sin. So given the opportunity to choose spiritual good, spiritual evil, heaven or hell, a sinner will choose hell. That's what it means. That's total depravity. Every part of us is tainted with sin. Now, when God makes the offer of salvation, we're told that his word and spirit, and the word is the offer, and the spirit enables the sinner with a new heart to choose to accept the offer. So we're saying that the sinner chose hell, and that's true. And we're saying that God elects believers, and that's true. And it is hard to hold in harmony for many of us. And I understand. I understand totally where you're coming from. Uh, it's not easy, but no one ever said that doctrines are always easy. There are doctrines that are shallow enough for lambs to wade in, and there are doctrines which are deep enough for elephants to swim in. This is part of the deep things of God. This is part of the meat of Scripture. That we're not going <clears> to, <throat> the little ones aren't going to fully understand this. Right? Even we're not going to understand it, but we're a little bit farther down than they are. And it's difficult, Laura. Doesn't foreknowledge enable God to know in advance which of us will respond? Yeah, and we will certainly respond because he knows it'll happen. But if that's the case, he ordained it. Right. Exactly. I'm not disagreeing. Gretchen? So um, when I first heard you say that they choose God, Yes. That sounds very strong, um, maybe even a little harsh. 
Um, so in my mind, the thought process goes to sometimes we do things and we don't understand what the consequences may be. It doesn't mean that we're not responsible for it. It doesn't mean that the consequences are just. It just means that we don't, sometimes we don't know the consequences of what we're doing. Or care. Or care. Yeah, that's true too. You know, but so the people that we love, that we see, that are, you know, basically walking straight into hell, some of them are extremely unaware of that fact. And even if we explain it to them, some of them will not believe us or agree with us. What they're doing, <clears throat> according to Paul, what they're doing is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And they're inexcusable. They're inexcusable. There is no reason that anybody should deny the existence of God or of their duty to render worship and service to him. There is enough evidence and revelation everywhere that all of us should know God. So I understand there is ignorance. Yes, you're right. They may not fully understand the nature of heaven or hell, but they know that there's a God. And their conscience speaks to them that there is. Jim? To me, this is very comforting. I anguish at the decisions that I see others make. Yeah. And I anguish at the decisions that I made once upon a time as well. But I understand that the Lord is in control of the future. And so uh, that gives me great comfort. Yeah, it's, you're right. It's a very comforting, I think it's a comforting doctrine to God's people, as it should be. And when I see other people make decisions that bother me, I, I recognize that the Lord is not done yet. No. And the future is not for me to see. Right. Uh, and these people uh, who are making decisions that bother me uh, may come to the Lord uh, because he may call them at some point in time. And he's already decreed that that would be the case from the beginning of time. That's right. And we pray for them. We share the gospel with them. We do everything we can in hopes that he will draw them to Christ. Mary Alice? I think that all of these things and the inability of the standard human being to understand them is it increases his glory. I don't chafe at them. I just say it is as you say it is. I believe you are good. Yeah. And there is nothing evil that can come from any of this. I don't need to understand. Right. <clears throat> yeah, that's it's just it is the way he is. Yeah. And who are we to say, do this or do that, <laughs> don't do this or don't do that? Right. You're right. And it is a profound mystery, but it is not a contradiction. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There you have both connected together. You crucified and killed. They chose to crucify him. They are responsible. Their guilt is upon them. Yet, he was delivered up according to the definite plan, the decree, and the foreknowledge of God. The most heinous act in the history of the world is identified as part of God's plan. And the worst evil, crucifixion of the Son of God, is brought to give the greatest good, the salvation of the church. Angels and men, his special decree, he's especially decreed the destinies of angels and men. He was under no obligation to elect some angels to glory. Out of mere love, he was moved to elect angels. 
The rest of them he permitted to fall willfully, irrecoverably into sin. The demons. They once were angels. God elected some people in Christ to be redeemed, justified, endowed with eternal life. And with respect to the angels, there was no salvation, but simply he preserved some of them from sin. No salvation in the angelic world. You're either a good angel or a bad angel. With regard to believers, he chose them, notice, in Christ from before the foundation of the world. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. So it's, the idea is that he elected us to the means by which we hear the gospel, repent of sin, believe in Jesus. All of this is ordained by God. And it's in Christ. When he looked down and saw the mass of unbelieving and sinful humanity, in Christ he chose those whom he determined to save. He doesn't treat us as robots or puppets. He treats us as reasonable and moral creatures. Come, let us reason together. He extends the offer, and it's a sincere offer. Be saved by believing in Jesus. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. How? How are you going to be saved, chosen ones? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So you're not just some stock and block. He's not just going to say, oh, there we go. Ron's saved. No, he's saving Ron through belief in the truth and his sanctification. And this is the way that he has determined to save us. You say, what, what part does obedience play? It's an expression of gratitude and the way in which he has decided to save us. Union with Christ, it's not based on foresight. Election in Christ shows the importance of union with Christ. This idea that God chose us in Christ, we are united to him. Perhaps one of the most important doctrines in our soteriological system, in our doctrine of salvation, union with Christ. When you're a Christian, you are spiritually, mystically, really, and inseparably joined to Christ. You are one with Christ. Right now, in principle, you reign with him. You are seated at the right hand of God the Father. It's done in our effectual calling by his word and spirit. Only the elect are effectually called. He enlightens the mind. He renews the will. He draws the affections. He does this through his word and spirit, the ordinary means. And only the elect are effectually called, although others may be outwardly called by the word. They have what we call some common operations of the spirit. These are things that unbelievers can experience. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Sobering passage. These people did amazing things. Preachers proclaiming the word, exorcists, miracle workers. And Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you in your closet when you were on your knees in prayer. Yeah, I saw what you were doing. As for what was sown on rocky ground, 
This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. Common operation. Even an unbeliever can respond in some way to the word preached. Wow, heaven, what a wonderful place. I want to go there. Wasn't it Balaam? Let me die the death of the righteous. But they fall away. It's not real. It's not genuine. It's a common operation of the Spirit. It's impossible in the case of those who have been once enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. That word impossible doesn't mean improbable. It is impossible. And these are common operations of the Spirit. You're saying, what? Are you kidding me? Well, let's look clearly. It's debatable. Believers are not left without such a presence and support of the Spirit of God as keeps them from sinking into utter despair. We are kept by the power of God through faith. So, once been enlightened, you gain the knowledge of the truth, but there is no power over the soul. I've known professors in seminaries who can study the Bible and know a lot more than me, but it exerts no power over the soul. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Once been enlightened. Tasted the heavenly gift. You're convicted in your conscience, but there's no grace. You have a lamp in the hand, but no oil in the lamp. Felix was alarmed. He said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. His conscience was alive and well. But that conviction of sin does not necessarily mean conversion. Tasted the heavenly gift. It's a gift from heaven to have a tender conscience. Shared in the Holy Spirit, you have the gifts that confirm the truth and power of the gospel. Did we not prophesy, cast out demons, do many mighty works? Only the Spirit can enable them to do that. And then tasted the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the age to come, the words, signs, and wonders. When Jesus finished, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, and they crucified him. So, these are common operations of the Spirit. Believers and unbelievers alike can experience these things. That's why Hebrews 6 says that when they depart, it's impossible to restore them. If you're worried about this, that's a good sign. It applies to people who aren't even concerned about it. So, I, when I was a new Christian, I was worried. I committed this unpardonable sin. I thought I was one of these. <laughs> and somebody graciously said to me, if you're really worried about this, don't worry about it. <laughs> want to make sure because I think I heard something before that you know God had foreknowledge of our salvation and we chose we didn't choose him. Right. You know, and I that was back in my Baptist days when oh I chose God because he knew I was going to choose him. No. Right. No. It doesn't work that way. He knew you were going to do that because he ordained for you he to do it. And he even ordained the means by which it would happen. Absolutely. I had nothing to do choosing him other than being obedient yeah. to the word. And, but yeah, that just that was in my Bible and I had to right. scribble that out. <laughs> so. It's funny because the only thing he requires of us for our salvation is faith. Faith in Christ. Which is itself a gift. Yeah. A gift. Philippians one twenty nine. 
He's granted to you not only to suffer, but to believe in his name. He gave it to you. So it's a gift. So our salvation is totally a free grace. There's nothing we can do on our own. It's all of God. Objections real quick. It implies that God's the author of sin. No, he's not. He ordains it all, but he's not the author of it. It takes away the human being's freedom of choice. No, it doesn't. It does not remove our natural liberty. We don't have the ability, but we have the liberty. They don't force or compel anybody to do anything against their will. It stripped us of ability to choose spiritual good and inclined us to evil continually. That's the effect of the fall. We can't choose spiritual good on our own. You can't. You're dead in sin. How does a dead person choose anything? It's not that you're sick. That's the Pelagian. That's the semi-Pelagian. That's the Arminian view. You're just sick. But there's something in you that enables you to choose Christ. No. You're dead, Ephesians 2. A dead person doesn't do anything. So it's stripped us of all ability, inclined us to do evil. We have the ability to choose sin, the liberty to choose whatever we desire, and we can't confuse God's decrees and predestination with the false doctrine of fatalism. Fate is something decreed regardless of our choices, words, actions, and feelings. God works with, through, and in our choices. It's decreed contrary to our choices and desires. For example, Oedipus Rex. Fatalism. Oedipus Rex. I don't know if you've heard that story. It's an ancient Greek um, play. The young man, it's foreordained. It's, it's decreed by the gods that he would kill his father and marry his mother. The guy is not a murderer by nature. Well, he's a sinner, but in the Greek understanding, he's not a murderer, and he doesn't want to marry his mother. He doesn't know he's killing his father. He doesn't know he's marrying his mother. And according to fatalism, it doesn't matter what he chooses, that's going to happen. That's not how it works with God. The decrees of God don't interfere with, but rather establish the free choices. So when the, they crucified Christ, they wanted to do that. That was their choice, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified the Son of God according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's what the Bible reveals. A certain character in a book is robbed. Who's responsible, the thief or the author? Who's responsible? Well, the character who robbed is responsible. He robbed, but the author wrote the book. He's responsible. So is it the robber or the author? It's both. It's kind of a poor analogy, but it kind of gets at a little bit of what we're talking about here. Oh, well. Sorry, it's way past. I'm sorry. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Father, thank you for your patience with us. We recognize our inability and our weaknesses in understanding these profound mysteries. Help us in faith to embrace them and to glorify your name because of them. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.